I've spent the last few years working for one of the largest shockwave clinics in North America, and I've learned a thing or two about the power and untapped potential of regenerative medicine. But the march towards a future where sickness is healed from its root cause is challenged by the influence of big pharma and their deep pockets. So now we're forced to answer questions like, how do we get rid of joint pain, take back our performance in the bedroom, and heal diseases from the inside out without band-aid medications or negative side effects? This show will give you the answers. Follow along as I interview the world's top experts and doctors and how they transform their lives and their patients' lives using the newest advances in biotechnology. I'm your host, Austin James Wolf, and you're listening to Modern Biotech Radio. Hey, what's going on, Modern Biotech Pioneers? So today I'm with Aubrey DeGray. How's it going? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, yeah. So you've done a lot in your life. Uh, It would probably do an injustice for me to recount those things. But for our audience, um, give us your backstory. What, what, what are your credentials? What do you study? What do you love to do? What do you love to research? What are you about? Uh, right. Well, uh, I am the chief science officer of Sense Research Foundation, which is a biomedical research charity based in Silicon Valley. And we are interested in keeping people healthy as they get older. In other words, we are interested in medical approaches to combat the phenomenon of aging. Right. Aging consists of the accumulation of a lot of different types of molecular and cellular damage in the body. So what we do is we develop ways to repair that damage and thereby essentially turn the clock of aging backwards, genuinely rejuvenate people so that they not only look but also feel and function like young adults, however long ago they were born. Right. Right. I noticed I, I was watching your TED talk and you broke it down into seven different categories um, that we could sort of target with potentially different therapies. Uh, you mentioned that so far there was no evidence or there would be no finding of a lurking eighth different category. That, that was in 2013. Did we ever find the eighth category? Is that still a thing or is it still just those seven main categories? Actually, it was in 2005, and yes, oh. it seven Oh, awesome. Good. Wonderful. Great. Okay, cool. Now, let me ask you this. Um, you're probably much more up-to-date on the sciences than I am. What are, your, what are your thoughts on exosome therapy? Well, exosome therapy is not really a good term. Exosomes are very important and versatile containers for things. They are right. small membrane-bound vesicles, as they're called in biology, which, can, which are released naturally by cells and taken up by other cells. So they exist in the circulation. And we can manufacture them. We can make them in whatever form we like, with whatever cargo we like, right. and use them to supply stuff. So it shouldn't be called a single therapy. It's really a, a, you know, a, a tool that we have for... Right. Uh, delivering a whole wide range of therapies. And yes, absolutely. These are relatively new discoveries. They are still very much the, um, the subject of a lot of research. So we are nowhere near the end of discovering what we can do with exosomes. And I think it's highly likely that they will play a large part in the delivery of a wide variety of therapies going forward. What do you think their biggest potential is? Oh, that's impossible to say. In fact, in general, <laughs> in general, it's impossible to give any kind of hierarchy of right. the types of therapy we need, the types of damage we need to fix. The reason for that is because all of these types of damage accumulate simultaneously. And indeed, it's a basic 
fundamental consequence of evolution that all of them become health problems at right. roughly the same age. Uh, in other words, we have evolved um, machinery to try to slow down the accumulation of these various types of damage, but the selective pressure to evolve or to maintain that machinery in our genome is all determined by the same thing. So we never fix any type of damage, if you like, unnecessarily well relative to the others. Right. That means that the, one, the way that we at Central Research Foundation identify our priorities is not by saying, oh, this, this type of damage is that much more important than the other type of damage, but rather we simply look at what is being neglected, what area of damage repair is lagging behind in terms of pro progress in the research because we can't afford for that to happen. So we right. need to help them to catch up. Right, that makes sense. How did, how did you get involved in this whole field? What, what made you decide to go down this path in research? Essentially, I decided to get into this more than 25 years ago now, largely because I discovered that so few other people were doing it. Right. And who were didn't seem to be doing it very well. Um, originally, when I was a kid, I came to the conclusion pretty early on in my life that I wanted to get into science one way or another. I wanted to make a difference to the world, and that meant working in pioneering technological areas. Um, but the area that I ended up in initially was artificial intelligence research, because when I was 15, I started programming, found I was pretty good at it, and decided, well, that's an area where I can apply those skills for the good of mankind. But I always knew that aging was a much more important problem than the problems I might be able to address with artificial intelligence. Right. Um, it's just that I didn't think that I was going to be able to make much of a difference when compared to all of the other biologists who were presumably also working on it already. And um, it was only uh, after, I got, uh, after I got to the point of meeting and marrying a biologist and meeting a lot of other biologists that I discovered that that was not true that, in fact, most biologists thought that aging was not very interesting and not very important, and they were not actually trying to do anything about it. Right. When I discovered that, it took me another couple of years to really come to terms with this extraordinary finding, um, but nevertheless, eventually I did, and so I decided, well, I have no choice. I have to switch fields. So I abandoned all of my perfectly successful artificial intelligence research that was going nicely, quite well, um, in favor of a complete switch of career. I love that. I love that. And um, did you, you're the chief scientific officer for SENS research. What's the story behind SENS? What's, what's its main purpose? Well, we are a nonprofit, which means that we focus on getting stuff done that is deprioritized by the private sector. Right. And that used to mean pretty much everything. Right. Because until the past five years or so, the work that needed to be done that we felt was most important was at such an early stage that even the most courageous angel investors who are perfectly comfortable with high risk, high reward opportunities, nevertheless, they felt they just couldn't join the dots. They couldn't right. see how they would get from where we were to eventual revenue, even in right. the long term. But now, that has substantially changed. Um, many of the work, areas that we used to work on, we don't need to work on anymore because they have made that leap into the private sector. And I work personally very closely with a wide range of different investors of all kinds, from angel investors all the way through to institutional ones, um, putting them in contact with new opportunities and get, making sure that the right work gets done. So what Sense Research Foundation does is essentially what's left. In other words, 
the really difficult, the most difficult areas of rejuvenation biotechnology, the areas that are still not quite at the point of being investable. And we grind away on them for as long as it takes until they become investable, until investors start to say, yeah, you know, I'll go for this. What are some of those areas? The areas that we still work on? Well, let's see. Um, one of them is mitochondrial mutation. So we have these important parts of the cell called the mitochondria, which do the chemistry of breathing. They combine oxygen with nutrients in order to extract energy from the nutrients, which is used by the rest of the body. And mitochondria have an unfortunate feature, namely they have their own DNA, which is a really bad place for DNA to be because lots of toxic molecules, free radicals are generated as a byproduct of the chemistry of breathing. So um, that DNA accumulates mutations far, far faster than the DNA in our regular chromosomes in the nucleus of the cell. And that seems to contribute to aging. So we want to fix that. And our approach dates from back in the 1980s, actually, it was first put forward. And it was essentially everyone gave up because it was too hard. And I revived it a long time ago. Um, essentially, the idea is to put backup copies of the mitochondrial DNA into the nuclear DNA so that it's protected. In order to make that work, you have to modify that DNA to compensate for the fact that it's in the wrong place. And... Um, you know, that's, not, that's a lot easier said than done, surprise, surprise. Um, so we're still working on that, but we're much closer to making it actually happen than anyone ever thought was possible. So that's really good. And another example of something we're doing is we want to do cell therapy for the brain. So at the moment, um, of course, some stem cell therapy in many different organs is becoming a really big thing, a real thing. And even in the brain, there are certain cases where you can use stem cell therapy and it's in clinical trials. So Parkinson's disease is the best example of that. But there are many things that go wrong with the brain aging, including Alzheimer's disease, that cannot currently be treated that way, basically because the problem of cells dying and not being automatically replaced by cell division is too broadly distributed, too much across the whole brain. And Stem cells, if you inject them into the brain, they'll just sit where you put them. Right. right? And they won't get to where they're needed. So what we have is a project that we're funding, not actually in our own labs in Silicon Valley, but rather in Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, um, which is designed to give neuronal precursor cells, type of stem cell, the ability to migrate before they convert themselves into actual neurons. Hmm. And it's going really well, but it's pretty radical and new and not ready for investment quite yet. Right, right. I love that. I was going to ask you, this is something that I'm currently researching and haven't really fully formed an opinion yet. Uh, funding for science. There's different types of funding for science, whether it's institutional, you know, governments, nonprofits, um, venture capitalists. Which one is, in your opinion best for the long term and most sustainable? Um, it's a complicated question, actually. Right. Um, because clearly the private sector is necessary for the long term. It's the um, sector that takes pioneering technologies all the way through to product and right. refine the products and so on. But equally, people who want to make money tend to want to make it tomorrow. Right. So it's rather short-termist. In other words, you've got to have, you can't really fund something unless it's going to have at least an initial product, initial revenue right. thing fairly soon. So a lot of people oversimplify the next part of this question. They say, well, okay, that's all very well, but then we've got the government, haven't we? We've got public funding for right. academia. And that's true 
And nominally, it should solve the problem of short-termism of the private sector. But unfortunately, it doesn't. Right. It doesn't. It's because there is just as severe short-termism in academia as well, arising right. from a completely different reason, namely the fact that there isn't enough funding to go around. Right. Everyone in uh, university labs who relies on government grants for their money, um, they have to find a way to maximize their chances of, of getting a grant up, um, approved. And that generally means doing stuff that can get published really fast so that they get a track record and they can demonstrate that they're really good at what they say they're good at. And, um, of course, that means low-hanging fruit. It means there's just as much short-termism as ever. And it also means that it's very difficult for academics to switch fields or to work on stuff that is at the periphery of their existing area of expertise. So that biases the whole system extremely strongly against cross-disciplinary work, which is vital for something like aging, which is so uh, multifaceted. So yeah, it's terrible. So what that leaves is the philanthropic sector. That's why Sense Research Foundation was created, of course. We are funded predominantly by philanthropy, by people who just give us money. They don't need to cover their asses in any way. It's just their money. And that includes, of course, a few um, very wealthy donors and also a large number of small donors who just give us $100 a month or whatever. Um, and so, and without us, you know, a lot of work that's happened over the past decade just would never have happened. It would never have been funded by anybody else. But in the long term, to come back to the way you asked your question, Really, one needs all of these. Right. One needs, one needs to avoid any kind of valley of death at any point in the, in the sequence. Right. I was going to say, um, I don't quite remember when microwaves were first discovered, but it was quite a long time until they were actually usable for the end consumer. So that was a pretty long period of time, decades before someone could capitalize on that discovery. So even that, just that example alone, but almost every single example of, you know, a scientific discovery being turned into a capitalizing opportunity sometimes is a very, very, very long time. So um, yeah, that's always, that's always been one for me. I'm like, okay, you know, what, what systems are really are the best? And I really liked your answer. All of them, all of them seem to be a very good answer to, to that end. What are, your, what are your thoughts on Dave Asprey from Bulletproof? Oh, yeah. I like Dave. Yeah, he's a good mate. We, we, we get invited to the same conferences, so I bump into him quite often. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, of course, he's doing a great service to humanity by what he does, not just with bulletproof coffee and so on, but right. also with the um, advice that he gives. Right. So his area of expertise is somewhat complementary to mine. He um, mainly focuses on stuff that people can do already, and I focus on the development of, of medicines that don't yet exist. Um, but yeah, we're very much in the same um, bracket. He has a goal to lift to 180. Do you think he'll make it? Not without me, he won't. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good answer. Basically, you know, and he knows this, of course. You know, things we can do today are better than nothing, but they are, right. not, but they are not much better than nothing. Right. So ultimately, the goal of living the best you can today, apart from just the fact that in the meantime, you know, you'll, have, you'll be healthier than you would have been, is that you will stay healthy enough for longer. In other words, healthy enough to have a chance of benefiting from these therapies that don't yet exist. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. The, the, there's a question that just popped in my mind, completely off, off topic. Um, does the FDA help or hurt advances in this field? Uh, it plays a role. Okay. Um, on the one hand, you definitely need 
people who really understand how to determine whether a product is safe and effective. Right. Secondly, as a government, you need an agency that can reflect public opinion with regard to the appropriate risk-benefit ratio of a, um, of a new medicine, for example. So the FDA has a role that's very important. It reflects public opinion up to, uh, ultimately. Uh, however, of course, public opinion is sometimes a little bit more risk-averse than it ought to be. Right. And indeed, it seems to me, certainly, and it seems to many people, that the FDA is overly focused on ensuring that things are completely safe, and this results in an unnecessarily, an, you know, suboptimally slow process of a regulatory approval of drugs, if they get approved at all, uh, which means that people die, you know, who would not die if they got the drugs. And the number of people who die that way uh, is greatly in excess of the number that die from being given an unsafe drug that somehow got through the process. Um, but, of course, that's kind of okay because different countries, different populations have different attitudes and therefore different jurisdictions have different regulations. It's kind of okay. Right. Now, specifically in, in respect to aging, I should mention this. Um, aging had a particular problem with the FDA until very recently, which was that not only is it hard to treat and new medicines have got to do the normal thing, but also nobody was able to agree what it actually is. Right. You know, a definition of aging that was sufficiently specific and concrete that it could actually be used to describe a clinical endpoint, a yes-no binary decision that whether a clinical trial has achieved what it's supposed to achieve. And that, you know, meant that it was off-limits, which, of course, um, exerted an enormous um, chilling influence on big companies, big pharma, who might be interested in developing drugs to actually treat, you know, the, have a broad-based treatment for the um, health problems of late life. They just, you know, if they couldn't get it approved, they couldn't make money out of it and so on. So very recently, in the past couple of years, that has changed. There is now, um, uh, well, there was a big initiative that went on, which led to the approval of a, a clinical trial, a rather strange clinical trial, because the drug that is being tested is way off patent. It's a really old drug, metformin. Um, no one's ever going to make any money out of it. And the only reason the trial is happening is because of philanthropic donations to make that trial happen. But what matters is actually not the trial itself. What matters is the definition of the trial. In other words, the clinical endpoint, which is basically aging in all but name. It's a complicated combinatorial endpoint described in terms of a number of different um, pathologies of late life that individually are already perfectly good endpoints, but combining them in a manner that encapsulates what aging really is. Right. Now, that, that removes this chilling effect I was talking about, because whatever, whether or not this trial happens or, or succeeds, any big pharma company can now just create their own clinical trial for their own drug that is, on, that is patentable, right? Um, and they can just copy and paste the same clinical endpoint out right. of this system trial. Right? So that's a good thing. It's a very good thing, yeah. It's going to make a lot of difference. Right, right. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, in, this, in this area of research in anti-aging, what specifically is your favorite area to research? I don't, kind of don't have one. Remember, I'm in this for humanitarian purposes. Right. What me out of bed in the morning is the number of lives that I will save by bringing forward the defeat of aging, even by one day, that's 100,000 lives or more, right? Right. So I don't think of anything as my favorite area. 
a lot of people will ask the question um, a little bit differently from how you did. They'll say, well, doesn't it, doesn't it frustrating having to spend all your time doing, doing media and going, running around the world giving talks when you should be doing science, which is what you've been trained to do? But no, it's not. I regard all of it as part of the job because right. I have designed this job you know, to do whatever it takes, whatever's needed um, that I'm good enough at. No. And my goal, of course, is to become unnecessary. My goal is to, um, for the movement to grow sufficiently that there are people in it who are better than me at everything that I'm good at, whether it's the science or the advocacy or whatever. Uh, and then I can retreat into glorious obscurity and you won't have no way. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that's coming. That's coming. Yeah, it's very noble. Who, who's, who's a scientist or researcher that you really respect? Oh, masses of them. I mean... You know, when you're a good scientist yourself, it doesn't take very long to figure out who are the best colleagues. Right. Like, you only have to go to a few conferences and listen to a few talks, and especially listen to the questions that scientists ask each other. But, you know, it's pretty quick. So, yeah, of course, I have, I have a lot of friends in the, um, in the field, and, of course, a lot of people that I really look up to. What about historically? Well, I mean, where do you start? You know, it's <laughs> a good question. Science has only got where it is today by virtue of having an awful lot of people who are awfully smart um, contribute to it. You know, I don't have any particular people in mind that you wouldn't think of. Yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. That's awesome that there's so many of them that, you know, I can't even, I can't even imagine. It, to me, I used to be in the entertainment industry, so... Someone asking me what my favorite actor would be. I mean, you know, I studied all of them. There's so many good ones, you know. You can't just choose one. Right. Very respectable. Uh, I know that you've written a book or two or three. But if you were to write another book, what would that book be about? Yeah, well, it's hard to know. You know, I keep... Uh, my main book came out in 2007, Ending Aging. And people have been asking me since about 2008 when I'm going to write the next book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, first of all, because of what you mentioned earlier, the fact that the whole paradigm has so strongly stood the test of time. Yeah. There's not all that much more to write. Of course, there's been right. massive progress, but the progress that has occurred has been pretty much what we said would occur. Right. So um, there's no big paradigm shift that I have to talk about. Plus, also, you've got other people coming along. So in 2009 or 10 or so, I was thinking, you know, I probably ought to get around to writing a book about why this is so important, uh, in contrast to ending aging, which was mostly the science, about how we should go about it, even though it was, we did our best to write it for a non-specialist audience. Yeah. Um, but then Sonia Harrison came along and wrote a book called um, 100 Plus, which was more or less exactly what I would have written, so I didn't need to. Right. And um, just last year, David Sinclair, a friend of mine who's also a big high-profile biogerontologist, he um, decided also that it was time to write a book. And so, you know, again, most of the reason for me to write another one has been... It's already been done. No, I love that. That's awesome. That's, yeah, David Sinclair, he's, yeah, he's very respectable too. Very bright guy. Very bright. And, and I will say this. He is not just smart. He's also quite courageous. There's, you know, I have been out there for the past 15 or more years, um, you know, telling it like it is, talking about how aging is a medical problem that we are within striking distance of solving. And, um, you know, it took a long time for anyone to take me seriously, really. Yeah. But for at least the past 10 years, I haven't really had to have conversations about the validity of my science in private. Right. Because other scientists totally acknowledge that the bulk of what I say, anyway, the essence of what I say is totally right. 
Right. Um, but they can't go out and say it on, uh, on camera. You may ask, why not? The answer fundamentally is coming back to what I was saying earlier about public funding. You, that, that it has this chilling effect on um, uh, cross-disciplinary work and, and it, people go for low-hanging fruit. The other thing that's really important is that people have got to be terribly, terribly careful not to allow themselves to be accused of in any way being irresponsible. Because right. that was a nice co- us-covering reason to turn down a grant application. Right. right? So they have to be terribly, terribly careful about what they can say. Um, and, you know, very, you know, very much err on the side of pessimism when it comes to interpreting progress that goes on. So I have an extraordinarily important role to play because I'm not in that position on account of the fact that the funding for Sense Research Foundation comes from a different source, namely philanthropy. Right. But, of course, as time goes on, the people who are shackled in this way by, their, by having professorships here and there, right, they um, will be able to become slightly more courageous incrementally. Right. And that's a great example of that. If you look at the book you came out with last year, the subtitle was um, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. Now, that's pretty audacious. Right. And I would venture to say that if he had written a book with that title five years ago, certainly 10 years ago, probably even five years ago, he would have had you know, a very uncomfortable conversation with his dean. He right. might have had getting keeping his job, let alone getting his next grant application funded. So, you know, we need more of that. No, oh, yeah, that's awesome. I was gonna, I was gonna ask the rest of the questions in the private interview, but uh, let's 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 keep it public. It seems to be, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. What, what's something that's? This is hard to ask. This is hard for me to ask a scientist. What's something that's true for you that no one else agrees with you on? <laughs> Peter Thiel's well, question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the good news is that there isn't much of that anymore. Right. Certainly, I've yeah. always felt that the role of a scientist is to be in a minority of one as often as possible and as briefly as possible, right. um, either by realizing you're wrong or by convincing other people that you're right. Right. Um, and, um, you know, obviously I had to do a lot of that 10 years ago uh, when I was really shifting the paradigm for how we might address aging with medicine. Um, but these days there isn't much of that to do. The times that, um, you know, that I'm in a minority of one these days, they tend to revolve around really narrow, teeny little technical areas that it would take me half an hour to even explain. Right. Um, and that's how I like it. You know, it means that uh, I can still make contributions, but there's nothing, there's no, I, I don't feel there's any risk of the whole thing collapsing around me. Right. When you, when you were going out and you were, you know, spreading your message, showing people the science, back in a time when not everyone agreed with you, what do you think, maybe this isn't the right phrase, but what do you think turned the tide? What do you think was the shift where the majority started to actually look at the science? Uh, It was definitely not just one thing. You see, Mm -hmm. the difficulty with being a really busy, you know, senior scientist is that you've got to decide what to read. Right. You know, 90% of, in fact, I would say 98% of the criticism of my work, especially the more vocal criticism of my work that occurred 15 or more years ago, was made by people who hadn't read my papers. Right. And it was a result of not having read my papers. It was based on complete, you know, completely straightforward lack of understanding of what I was actually saying. Right. So, you know, every time someone who has come to an opinion based on secondhand information or what somebody else told them or whatever, Every time they find out that they were wrong about some little thing, you know, they misunderstood some little thing, 
which only takes sitting down over a beer with me, you know, which I do quite a lot. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, every time that happens, they become a little less sure that their skepticism was actually valid. They have a little bit more incentive to actually read a paper or two. And, and so, it, so it's all cumulative. It's just a step-by-step process. And, of course, there remains a certain amount of, um, you know, inclination to be cautious, as I mentioned earlier, for, right. for financial reasons and for political reasons. But still, you know, it, 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 it's, it's really just a case of any paradigm shift is like this. In fact, if you are, if you, if you, I would say it took a total of about 10 years from the point that I first started talking about all of this to the point where it was completely mainstream and orthodox and only a very small minority of specialists were really dismissing it. And that's pretty average. That's pretty good, actually, as a time frame for something that's such a profound paradigm shift. Right. Yeah, it actually is. One thing that we're sort of struggling with is getting the word out there that acoustic wave therapy can help treat erectile dysfunction. That's, that's our main thing. And in the published studies, a majority of the men do see improvements, not all of them, but a majority of them. Uh, But, you know, without drugs or side effects or adverse side effects, it's pretty great. But going out to doctors and getting them to actually read the studies has has been a challenge because doctors are very busy helping people. Uh, so that is that is one thing that we're currently trying to overcome is, I guess, getting more people to actually read the studies because people just read the studies, um, they would understand that it can. Well, I mean, of course, when it comes to actually treatments that are already available as opposed to medical research, right? We've got additional problems. Uh, namely, you know, people have got to determine whether they can make money out of prescribing the product thing. Right. Whether or not they actually believe that the thing might work. Right. Yeah. So that is another uh, additional barrier. I guess it is what it is. Yeah. When you were when you were young and you wanted to be a scientist, do you remember the moment when you decided to be a scientist, or was that always there since you were a kid? I do actually have one particular incident that occurred, which I feel was very much the germ of all of this. So it took several years after that before I really knew that I wanted to go into science. Um, And it happened when I was probably eight or nine years old. And uh, it had to do with the piano. Basically, my mother, she wasn't a particularly good pianist, but she liked to play and she wanted me to play. And so she was constantly badgering me to practice the piano. And I was resistant to this. I really didn't fancy doing this. But here's the thing. Somehow or other, even by that very tender age, my mother had managed to instill in me a strong inclination to introspection, to, uh, a strong desire to understand why I thought what I thought. Yeah. So I actually considered, why do I not want to spend my time practicing this in- instrument? And the thing was that it, was very clear to me without any real um, you know, reflection, it was very clear to me that the fundamental reason I didn't want to do it was because of the best case scenario, namely that I would become a good pianist. And that I immediately saw was just not good enough because there were already plenty of other good pianists. Right. And, you know, just becoming another one was an insufficient contribution to humanity. And that was what helped to crystallize in my mind the fact that what I wanted to do with my life was make contributions to humanity. 
Um, so, of course, over the next few years, that began to um, solidify into an understanding that I wanted to go into science because ultimately scientists are the people who do make the most difference in the long run. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, after that, it was, all, it was all fairly straightforward. But if you ask me, why do I want to make a difference to humanity? Why is that what drives me? I have no idea. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. And I also don't care that I don't know. It's just, it's, it's who I am. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Thinking about, you know, what, what's going what's gonna to contribute to society the most. That's, that's kind of why I gave up. Not gave up, but turned my career from an actor-writer to something more. Just because, you know, there's a lot of good actors, a lot of good writers. There's a lot of good stories. Yeah, I mean, it's but, the same as having kids, you know. I've never yeah. had kids. And fundamentally, it's the same reason. Right. Having kids is a really time-consuming thing. Right, yeah. A lot of other people are already really good at. Right. For sure. For sure. I was like, I don't want to dedicate my, my life to writing. There, there's enough good stories out there. I'll write every now and then, but it's not going to be my life's work. I definitely relate to that. What, what, what field do you think is the next biggest advancement in medicine going to be? Well, since the next advance, since the next big advance is definitely going to be in aging, yeah. there cannot really be an answer to your question because the multifaceted nature of aging means that the only way we're going to address it effectively is by very multi-part, multi-component combination therapy. Right. Which addresses and repairs and eliminates a different type of damage in the body. Right. What we are, that's what we are probably going to end up focusing on at Sense Research Foundation more and more because what's happening now, I mentioned the emergence of the industry, the private sector involvement in this, what's happening is that individual components, individual damage repair approaches are being taken private and being taken forward nice and rapidly and that's all wonderful and people will make money out of them. But the real jackpot will come only when they are combined and combining existing therapies that are owned by different people and so on is not something that's easy to make money out of. Right. So it may end up being that it falls to the nonprofit sector, such as Sense Research Foundation, to emphasize that and to, you know, to get the real um, final product. Right, right. That makes sense. All right, this is my last question. I guess penultimate question. If you were given a Super Bowl ad, but you couldn't sell anything, what would you say? We've been worrying about that sort of question for quite a while. <laughs> day, you know, I am who I am. I'm pretty good at my job. I'm not just into science, I mean the advocacy, but yeah. I say things in a particular way. I have a particular style, a particular you know, way of expressing myself, and it resonates with some audiences and not with others. Right. So for the longest time, one of the biggest difficulties in this field was the fact that I was more or less the only person out there you know, giving a good account of what, what, why this is so important. Now that's changed. And I don't just mean scientists like Sinclair. I mean non-scientists, advocates, community um, people who, from all kinds of disciplines, who say things in a different way, get through to different audiences. So that diversity of messaging has now happened. But what we need next in order to really get through to the general public is celebrity. We need people who already are God to large numbers of people. Right. who can just endorse and say, listen, spend your money on this research. It is the best way to save lives. And, you know, it's coming, it's going to happen, but when it's going to happen, Christ only knows. Right. Wow. Yeah, I actually never thought about that. That's, you, you've, you've, you've caused me to think quite a lot, this interview. I, I love it. 
There's a lot of, a lot of good nuggets that came out of this. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's a really good point. Well, if someone want to learn more about you or wanted to donate to SENS Research, where can they go? Well, you can go to our website, of course, SENS.org. Um, it's, I mean, I'm sure you'll put it in the, in the notes under the video. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, of course, there's a lot of information on that website. It's designed to have the, what you need, whoever you are, you know, from all the way from the real experts in the field through to complete novices. And, of course, lots of information, not only about what we do, but also news about what other people do and are doing that's important and so on. And, um, yeah, there's a, of course, there's a contact form. So if there's a question that you have that you can't find the answer to there, then you can ask us, and we're very good at replying to those. And, of course, then there is a nice, big, friendly donate button. You can donate with credit card or PayPal or whatever. Um, and if you want to donate a nice, large amount, then, of course, we have an address, and you can always send us a check. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I was going to ask a question that just popped in my head. Do you think that crowdfunding for research will become a big movement in the future? Well, we've tried it. We've done it quite a few times, actually. And to raise small amounts, like five-digit amounts, right. it's worked pretty well. But to raise really large amounts, the crowdfunding campaigns that have succeeded have only, uh, you know, raising millions, have really only been for things that actually have a product behind them at once. You know, right. so you can get priority access to something. That, um, that doesn't exist. And we can't supply that. You know, right. We don't know who's going to own thing or how it's going to be distributed. Though, of course, we're quite sure it will be distributed universally. But, you know, we can't put you first in line if you give us a million dollars. Right, for sure. So it sounds like the main difference is, okay, with, with this type of research, it's sort of like an investment. You know, if you put it in, you're going to get a product out or something else out. Whereas with uh, the research that you're doing, which has a very strong potential to help humanity in the long term, it's more of an investment in humanity itself. Okay. Well, that's right, yeah. And of course, you know, the reason why there is a private sector now, why there is an industry, is because there's definitely money to be made near term. Right. Uh, a lot of that is because these therapies, which, as I've emphasized, need to be combined and applied on aging. Nevertheless, individually, they can still have a very big impact on the health of a small subset of the population, the people who, for whatever reason, congenital reasons, for example, are uh, suffering an accelerated um, accumulation of just one particular type of damage, which is addressed by one particular therapy. And that's indeed the, very much the direction that most of the, many of the companies, the startups in this space, are going in order to bridge to the real McCoy, you know, to actually give investors uh, something, some reward uh, in, in, in the relatively short term. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Well, that's all the questions I got for you listeners. Go to sends.org. Donate. Help humanity out. Because this is a big deal. It really is. Thank you for your time, Aubrey. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Want to see what the top experts have to say behind the scenes? Just go to modernbiotechradio.com and you'll get instant access to every behind-the-scenes interview for free. Now, these interviews are not for the public, so please don't share. But if you'd like to pull back the curtain with me and learn what secrets they reveal, just go to modernbiotechradio.com and get instant access to these interviews for free. Again, that's modernbiotechradio.com. If you'd like to learn the best-kept secrets 
that they can't share publicly but allowed me to share in private, just go to modernbiotechradio.com and get instant access to all of these interviews completely free. I'll see you there. And now for our lovely legal and medical disclaimer. While I make every effort to broadcast correct information, I am still learning. I will double check all my facts, but realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and art. One doctor may have a different way of doing things from another. I'm simply presenting my views that are as evidence-based as possible. I welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. I take no money from drug companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog or watching this YouTube video, you agree to not use this podcast blog or video as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including, but not limited to, patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast blog or YouTube account. Under no circumstances shall Austin Wolf launch medical moon pool llc or the novus anti-aging center or any guests or contributors or any employees associates or affiliates of launch medical moon pool llc or the novus anti-aging center be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast blog or video this blog or podcast or video should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast, blog, or video. This website, blog, podcast, and video are all HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to subscribe to the website posts or to post information on the website or blog, I will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission. One more note. I have no idea what I'm talking about, and people that listen to me have a 100% mortality rate. This is true. Think about it. So please, consult your physician for any medical advice, uh, because this blog post, podcast, and YouTube video, or any other video, are meant for educational and entertainment purposes only.